If you like your theology hot, caffeinated, and stimulating, pour yourself a second cup of your favorite beverage and sit down with me, Keith Giles, as we explore topics like hell, the second coming, biblical inerrancy, women in the Bible, deconstruction, penal substitution, and so much more in the brand new book, Second Cup with Keith. Now, it's inspired by my podcast of the same name, Second Cup with Keith, but in the book, we'll go even deeper into these topics and prepare to be inspired, surprised, and challenged on nearly every page as we tip every sacred cow and leave no theological stones unturned. Second Cup with Keith, Volume 1, the brand new book from Choir Publishing and Keith Giles, available now on Amazon. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Nat Turney. That's Nat. That's N-A-T, like Nat King Cole, you know, like uh, who was a, hey, you can shut the hell up. Um, GMAT. I spent a lifetime dealing with that bull crap. No, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's like, it's like, I actually used to, I, I found out when I was a kid that there was a very famous person named Nat Turner. And I was, right. I tried to claim some connection to that. Yeah, I have not any, obviously not. But nobody gets my name. I had to find something that wasn't GNAT. You know, I'm like, well, like Nat King Cole, like Nat Turner, like, uh, that's pretty much all the Nats I know. Unlike John, who can point to all kinds of amazing people, and some not so great, just like John Calvin, just like uh, John. Oh wait a minute. Yeah, he's, uh, he's anyway, sorry. Hey, um, <laughs> <laughs> I used to, I used to try and like be sort of diplomatic when it came to John Calvin, and then I read some David Bentley Hart. I'm like, nah, I'm with him. He was a moron. So <laughs> David Bentley Hart has nothing nice to say about John Calvin. But hey, uh, uh, John's here with me. He's up in I the am. upper left-hand corner over here. And uh, this is the podcast that you have come come. Wow, I very nearly got through that. Without just got it. Yeah. This is the, the podcast you have come to know and love as this is not church because if it was church, you would have left by now. And uh, as, we are, as we are fond of saying, we'd be right there with you, man. But as always, we have an amazing guest. And so I'm excited to introduce you guys all to Dylan Neighbor Cruz, who just released his, his book on choir called Theological Musings. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. Cool. I know there's a subtitle. We'll get to that in a second. But uh, just let me introduce you to him real quick, and then we'll jump in. Uh, Dylan is a author, a permaculture enthusiast, speaker, occasional podcast guest. He holds a BA in history from Millersville University, an MA in religion from Lancaster Theological Seminary, and an advanced permaculture design practicum certificate from Oregon State University. Go Ducks. Uh, Dylan's work is multidisciplinary, bringing in history, theology, biblical studies, and a permaculture-inspired lens to his writing and teaching. He can be found hiking near his home in Lancaster, uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, watching sports or grabbing a beer at The Fridge. That's, wasn't that like a famous football player? The Fridge. Yeah, in the 80s. <laughs> uh, who, who was, uh, is that Jerome? Bre- no, that's not Jerome Bettis. Was that it? was William Refrigerator Perry. He was a defensive lineman for the 85 Bears. Because he was, that's right. It, okay. He, Jerome Bettis was the bus. Yes. And then we had William the Refrigerator Perry, who was just yeah. built like a refrigerator. And I, I, and I, I hate to do this, but I have what? to do this. Uh, Oregon State University is not the, oh, it's not the Ducks. It's that's the that's University of Oregon. He went, uh, Dylan went to the better one. Okay. okay. <laughs> John, John hated to do that so much that he had to do it. Um, I, I, know. I knew that Oregon State was the, was not the Ducks, and yet I said go Ducks anyway as a form of protest. 
So go I am Ducks. not a Ducks fan. I am a, uh, I am a Beavers fan. I love Corvallis. It's always going to be better than Eugene, period. Well, duh. I mean, <laughs> clearly Corvallis is better than Eugene. Yes. And Beavers are better than Ducks. I think they have a better stadium too. I, I love driving through Corvallis. So the University of Oregon has the, um, has the misfortune of being the alma mater of the guy from Nike, right? Phil Knight, yeah. Yeah. So they have yeah. the most... They're, they're, so I don't know if you know this, but I went to the University of Maryland. So the guy that founded Under Armour is a Maryland alumni. The guy who founded Nike oh. is, a, is a University of Oregon alumni. We both have the gaudiest uniforms in college football because <laughs> Under Armour goes batshit crazy designing outlandish uniforms for Maryland. And obviously, what's-his-face from Nike does the same thing with... with with the University of Oregon, and they have the most, ugh, it's just, it's awful. Um, although it does seem a little disingenuous to critique football teams based on their uniforms. But, I mean, otherwise no one would do it for the Browns ever. I mean, really? what's the, how, how are you the Cleveland Browns and your uniforms and your helmet are orange? What is a Brown anyway? All right, we'll talk about that later. Um, Paul Brown. <laughs> Is it Paul Brown? Is that really? Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, from, it's from way back. It could have been way Jim back. Brown. He came along too long. Afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so, way too long yeah. I don't know. It just seems weird. I mean, I guess maybe at one point they thought about naming all of the uh, football teams after primary colors. Here come the blues and then it's the purples against the browns and here come the oranges. Um, anyway, all of that is to say, welcome to the podcast, Dylan. How are you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, doing pretty good. It's, it's kind of hot in my space because I can't turn my fan on. Because it'll interfere yeah. with the sound, so I'm kind of sweaty. But I'm having a founder's quarter, and uh, I'm talking to two cool dudes. So hey, doing pretty good. First of all, excellent choice of beer. Oh yeah, it's one of my it's one of my go to favorites. There's I don't think Founders has ever made a bad beer. Just maybe styles I don't prefer. I don't like their green. Ze- I don't like their green zebra ghost very much. Yeah, and I do. I like it. I don't know why. It was the first ghost that I oh, was that, like. That's 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 that ghost. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I do not like it. Either. Yeah, it's that watermelon. But it's got that little bit of saltiness in there because it's a ghost. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm with Dylan yeah. on that one. Not good. Not good. <laughs> I, I'm, like I said, there's a, there's styles of beer they make that aren't my favorite styles. But as far as just. Quality. They are pretty consistent on making really good. Oh yeah, they're they're solid. All, all the barrel aged stuff is just off the charts good. I mean, they do some. Of oh my, god, yeah. Oh my gosh, the Kentucky Breakfast Stout is was my first for real barrel aged stout. And I was like, this is a new thing. I like this. So anyway, so good choice in beer. I applaud anybody who who chooses well in craft beer. Uh, must be capable of some deep theological musings. Uh, which is, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you well, like that, that place in the fridge that's, that's mentioned in my bio is, uh, is a local craft beer and pizza place. And they're, they're one of the top 10 in the, in the Northeast of the United States. Oh, nice. Uh, ranked, ranked by some beer thing. That and a place called the Bull's Head and Lidditz right down the road. So we've got two awesome craft beer places uh, to go to right around here in Lancaster County. And I'm a big, big fan. The Fridge is my happy place. So before we get too deep into this, you're, I think you and I were introduced to one another years ago. Really? Through Michael Harden. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's how I actually knew who you were. Was I was, oh, okay. was I was chummy with Michael years ago when he was running his private Facebook group and doing his thing. And um, I'm pretty sure you were part of that. Um, am I missing? Yeah, for a while I was. Yeah. Okay. I thought I was like, whew, I'm pretty sure. Okay. 
So I, knowing that, I know this, that whatever you have brought to the table here, you've been through the ringer. <laughs> I mean, forget seminary, that was good, but uh, Michael will put you through the ringer too. Oh, yeah. Let me ask you then, how much, if any, does Rene Girard figure into your theology? Because we were all big into talking about mimetic theory and you know those kinds of things. Is that, is that part of this or just maybe in a tangential way? Uh, I would say more tangentially. I, I mentioned... Uh, Gerard a little bit and um, Brad Zond in my first book, Go Golden. Oh, okay. Because I'm a person who believes that any authentic expression of Christianity is going to be pacifistic. So where I kind of diverge from Gerard, and and I'm going to have to admit that my my limit my reading is is pretty limited to like three books. Yeah, you know, sure. I have not I have not done a deep dive like you and Matt have into Gerard. But where I get stumbly is the idea that, say, somebody who is profoundly guilty of great harm being held accountable, as I understand Gerard, he still thinks that that person can be a scapegoat. Yeah. And and as somebody who has complex PTSD because some profoundly fucked up shit that people did to me, I have a real hard time with that. Now, not that's not to say that I want retribution, but I do want justice. And that might look like a different thing to some people, but I, I do have a hard time with the idea of, say, Lord Commander Marmalade being held accountable for the things that he did before and after his ter- term in office. Right, right. The flip side of that is, is that I absolutely see how violence can be mimetic. And I just mentioned this to somebody on Facebook today. Somebody posted this meme as a funny, funny haha with like the Lorax character, but in behind the Lorax was a guillotine. And it was like playing off the, you know, if you don't do something, nobody will kind of Lorax theme. And I was like, the French reign of terror is not something that should be celebrated because it perpetuated violence to an absolutely astonishing degree to the point that the people that started it ended up getting their heads cut off. Right, right. And then we got Napoleon. <laughs> Thank <laughs> the you. The world got Napoleon. And then, you know, and that whole crazy shit show for however many years he was running around trying to conquer the entire Western European world. So... I can see some veracity to that. The other, the other problem that I have with it is it's Eurocentric viewpoint. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it, it's clearly a it's clearly a European Christian viewpoint that, and again, limited understanding. But as I understand it, he kind of sees it as a social theory that fits all time and all people. And I just I just don't know enough about it to say. Hey, do people in China see the world this way? Does somebody from Djibouti see the world this way? You know, do, so that's that's probably ignorance on my part, and I'm not using that pejoratively. I'm using no, it as no, like, I, oh, no, it's, it's you know a question, I mean? no, and I'm not sure it's one that ever, that Gerard ever addresses because I think he would he would state or claim anyway that this is deeply human, and so therefore right. it would transcend. But I'm with you thinking, well, I'm not sure. I mean, it may be on some level, yeah. But there have to be some permutations of that that are specifically Western European in 
in, in their application, if nothing else, because just the, that's the culture you're in. And so we might view even the concept of retribution way differently than, than somebody else. Um, the one thing I would agree with, and that's, I think what gets a little, a little frightening sometimes is, is, is that, is that perpetuation of a of a violent cycle, uh, in yes. the name of justice to the point where you end up scapegoating people who maybe don't deserve it. But then, but I'm with you there, but there are, so, I, but, but then that becomes like a catch all for anybody getting justice that you, that you wish wouldn't. Well, now you're just scapegoating. I like how you put it, Lord Commander Marmalade. I'm not scapegoating him. He genuinely did harmful things. He should genuinely be held to account for some of those things. And if nothing else, I don't wish him ill. I don't mess I don't want violent things to happen to him. Uh, I would love if he could never hold office again. I think that, oh, yeah. I think that's yeah. a reasonable thing to say. Mm, if you've done these kinds of things, maybe that should not be something you could pursue in the future. And if you want to call that scapegoating, I think then you're pushing the, the definition of that, of what that means. But I do know, at least from my cursory reading of Gerard, that it is possible to scapegoat somebody who is not innocent, right? Right. Because that, that is kind of the sort of misnomer is that the scapegoats, scapegoats are always innocent. Well, not necessarily. Sometimes they're the victims of, of a, uh, of an excessive retribution, right? Um, so we can go overboard with that or, uh, Disproportionately punish somebody for something they've done. Then, but anyway, I didn't want to turn this into a into a treatise on on Jared. I was just curious how much of anything that played into it, and because we had that similar background with uh, with Michael. So, talk to us then uh, about the book. Talk to us about theological musings. There was a subtitle that I missed. It was uh, it's collected essays of a tattooed theologian, Volume One. Nice. Okay, uh, and that does mean that Volume Two is forthcoming. It's already written. It's it's with choir. Okay, so you you won't do to us what Mel won't do what Mel Brooks did to us and give us History of the World Part One and then wait thirty years to give us Part Two. No, that was fucked up. Um, <laughs> I, waited, I waited for years because he even, he even gave us a, like. Previews. I I was waiting for Hitler on I. I mean, come on, man! It was all Jews in space. (laughs) I got none of it, which we finally got. But it took. But it was terrible. Yes, it was. It was. It was. And there was no like Gregory Hines, and there was no like all the cool people that should have been in that movie are dead. So anyway, so there there will be a. I'm sorry, (laughs) it just jumped off. But there will be a volume. No, it's all right. Talk to us about volume one then. Well, volume one has a lot of essays uh, that look at contemporary American life and culture through the prism of theology. Uh, it also has some very deeply personal essays in it uh, with me that are dealing with me wrestling with um, post-traumatic stress disorder and how to enact grace and forgiveness to, to people that have caused harm uh, to me or, or to others, right? And this, I think, trauma-informed theology is something that don't hear an awful lot about because it's just, well, the Bible says that you just forgive 70 times 7, or, you know, because Jesus was non-retributive and, and he, like, healed a Roman centurion's slave, and he also said to forgive everybody that was putting him on a cross and all the stuff that that anybody that's been abused or oppressed in any kind of way, whether on a micro level, as it was in my home, uh, where I was a scapegoat in my, uh, in my mother's eyes, or in a more systemic way as with systemic racism, well, those people just have to 
forgive and forget. And I uh, have a real problem with that, with that line of thinking. And yet grace is super important as a concept because if we enact grace, then those things that cause that harm can be minimized. Kind of the way in um, the shack where, you know, he, I, if I'm remembering right, he kind of, he sees his father after his dad is dead and they kind of, you know, they have their moment, right? And I understand that as, as really important, but the damaged person, the traumatized person or the oppressed group has to get there on their own time. We can't be forcing anybody into that. And sometimes the most important thing is to take care of the victim or the oppressed people first and let the abusers or the traumatizers and shit figure that out yeah. for themselves, right? No, so I, I, yeah. I'm going to have to quick look because there are so many essays, but I, I wrote an essay about um, a prayer for Trump one time. And I don't, I don't even know if it's in this book or the other book, but it's kind of relevant to what we were just talking about um, because he is Lord Commander Marmalade. And that's something that I stole from uh, Trey Crowder. I didn't, I wish I could have made that up, but that's a Trey Crowder original. And in this essay, I, I, or in this prayer, I kind of prayed that Donald Trump would be so overwhelmed by God's grace that he would walk up to a podium and go, holy shit, I was doing it wrong this whole time. My narcissism and unresolved issues for, surrounding my childhood have caused me to cause great harm. So I'm going to do all of these things to make amends. And how amazing would that be if that happened? And that would be a, that would be a miracle like Jesus walking on water, because clearly Mr. Trump is not anywhere close to that kind of thing. But what if God just reached down and tapped him on the noodle and, you know, and then all of a sudden he's just like, yeah, I raped a bunch of women and that was wrong. And I was a racist ever since the seventies and that was wrong. And here's all these things that I've done that are terrible. And I've now been so washed, like the guy that, that wrote Amazing Grace, who right, had been a right. slave trader, you yeah, know, get his name. he spent the rest of his life, like penitently being a servant of God. Yeah, dealing with going, the shit he did. dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and true repentance, true metanoia, true turning away from the kind of things that he had done that were so incredibly harmful to so many people. Well, and then there's that, that for me, it got to a point where it always seemed to come from sort of outside, directed at groups of people who'd been harmed some way. And then it seemed to me to further their harm to insist that they forgive without question. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, like literally you're just, now you're just, you know, like, like rather than say, listen, I know this is an ideal to which we all aspire. I get this. Um, mm -hmm. But depending on the level and the depth of the trauma, depending on the actual kind of harm that's been done, to insist that they owe somebody forgiveness is horseshit. Um, to right. insist that they do it on their on on someone else's timetable, as you mentioned, is horseshit. Um, and even the fact that it should not come from outside, but should be an internal process. It reminded me of this of this TV show or the series that was on CNN that was all about people reconciling or 
you know, it was all about forgiveness and grace. And, and so there were people that, that he would have on the show who had, who were either victimizers or victims of something hor- horrifying, you know, a mm-hmm. murder or actual assault or something. And it was always, it, 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 everyone was really, really beautiful. But one thing I noticed that was interesting was if, if either party was like, yeah, I'm not down for this. Like the answer was, okay, come when you're ready. You know, and in some, and in some, in some instances, it took months and months and months, if not years, for the person to be even willing to be in the same room with that person. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Then it was sometimes with the intention of saying, well, I'm going to get in the room with you and tell you what a piece of shit you are and let make you own the thing you, you know, so it didn't always, it didn't always have this neat, tidy Hollywood kind of thing, but it was real and it was touching and there was, there was agency given to the victim more so than the other. Mm-hmm. who terms with their own way of approaching this. And that's what's missing, I think, in, in a lot of our theological discourses. We we come at it from a purely theological perspective and say, the Bible says, what are we, that this is your obligation is to forgive. And and I think you're right. I, I, in my opinion, I think we're, I just think we perpetuate the harm rather than let people work through it on the, you know. But anyway, that, so I, I agree with you. Um, I, I come from this from a very similar position where for me, nonviolence, pacifism, that's the, that's the bedrock of my theology. Um, I believe that was this model for us. I don't believe, but I also, <laughs> you know, I'm realistic enough to know we live in this world where that doesn't always play out in simple answers, right? Because the second you tell something nonviolent, they will come up with a hundred different potential scenarios where violence might be necessary. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm aspirationally a pacifist, but I'm also a former Marine. And, you know, I haven't punched somebody in anger since probably junior high or high school. But that Marine Corps training that said locate, close with, and destroy my enemy is still embedded in my body and my brain some damn where. And I don't know what I would do if, if something really awful started happening and I needed to defend myself or defend somebody else. So it's it's an aspirational thing for sure, and that's kind of a. It's today. It's it's the anniversary, obviously, of of the nine eleven attacks, and there is an essay in my book about the things that we should not forget about that. And one of the things that is so powerful about that, in a terrible way, is that the response to those horrific attacks was the myth of redemptive violence that says that our violence is okay, but your violence is bad and that we have to go and restore order to the chaos in the way that Marduk did with Tiamat in the deep annals of time where that, that myth of redemptive violence comes from the ancient near East and how many people died as a result of the attacks on nine 11, which did not happen in isolation. They didn't happen simply because some radical extremist didn't like American freedoms, blue jeans, rock and roll music, and, you know, salacious TV and shit. No, they happened as a, as a retaliation for things that the United States government had been doing for decades in that part of the world. And these people were fucking sick of it. And then we, as Bush said, going to start a new, a new kind of crusade 
a new war on terror that's going to go on and on and on ad infinitum. And I saw some a post by uh, an activist named Nina Turner today. She said, we went, we're out of Afghanistan and yet the defense budget went up. Yeah, exactly. How, I mean, that's, that's absolutely bonkers. And our, it's, it's almost $900 billion now. Yeah. Well, and, you know, just in terms of lives lost. Right. I mean, we obviously far surpassed, you know, and nobody here is, is saying, you know, that, that what happened on 9 11 was, was, was not horrifying. It was bad. It's still, it's scarred. It's, I'm, you know, I think we're all scarred on some level from what happened. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, that day is etched in my memory. Like, no, like the only other day that comes close is the space shuttle Challenger explosion, which I was in my formative years when that happened. It's really etched in my brain. Right. But, but the flip side of that was decades of war. Mm hmm. Hundreds of thousands, if not, you know, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but I would, I, I would guess it's in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, not military, civilians killed, countries devastated, economies ruined, puppet governments propped up. I mean, all the stuff that we said we didn't do, right? We don't nation build, and yet what do we do? <laughs> we did, and I think we say that because we don't do it well. Like, every time we've well, gotten involved in, we, we just do this badly. I mean, come on, man. The, the, the Vietnam War happened because of nation building. I mean, there was us propping up the Vietnam. Anyway, um, the point is that on, on the one hand, everyone could understand, you know, hey, this happened to us and, and there's a need to react or respond. But was there a need to react or respond for 30 years, you know, and continue to pummel an entire region of the world, most of whom were not responsible for what happened? And then, like you said, just the, the amount of money spent. I mean, be crass about it and just talk about the amount of money we've spent mm-hmm. while we scream and yell, you know, that we can't afford to give everyone in our country, you know, access to free health care. But we were to wage war all over the world for decades. And yet my wife had to, we, we had to go into debt to get us to get an MRI when she, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's appalling. I mean, it, it's, when you contrast those things to me, it's, I don't even understand. It's just crazy, but. Well, there's an essay about that in the book, too. I make the, there's a deontological and a teleological case uh, for universal health care. And I outline them both and say, well, if you're, if you're going to look at it from a deontological standpoint, here's how that works ethically. If you're going to look at it teleologically, here's how that works ethically. And one of the points that I make in that particular essay is, A, we should have universal health care. I'm a disabled veteran. I'm 100% disabled by, uh, according to the VA because of PTSD. So I have health care. I don't pay a penny for my health care anymore. I think everybody in America should have that level of health care. Right. And one of the things that I say is if we contract the military budget by 25, 30%, everybody in America has health care. And when I say everybody in America, I mean everybody physically present in America. I don't give a fiddler's part about your citizenship. I care that you're a bipedal hominid in need of health care. You're a human being. So what if I only have, if I had the one leg, well, no longer <laughs> well, then, Fair point. Fair point. <laughs> but no, I'm with you. I'm like, to me, um, I, uh, I've told this story a couple times. John knows the story. Um, but my daughter got really sick when she was 19 and she had the temerity, the audacity, the unmitigated gall to be a 19 year old without healthcare insurance. And we didn't have insurance to give her either. So yeah. she gets, she gets intensely ill, spends five, 
to six months in the hospital. Um, oh, most of that in ICU on life support and all kinds of crazy stuff. Nearly died multiple times, and she and she leased, she left the hospital with millions of dollars in medical debt. Yeah, this is obscene. How the fuck does that happen? You know, I mean, where are you going to extract this money from the nineteen-year-old girl who just is in her second year of college? Yeah, it it it. Now, to their credit, the hospital treated her. To their credit, they didn't, you know, obviously in a very, in a very dystopian sort of version of this, they'd be like, no insurance, get the hell out and die. So you can make the case that people in America do have access to health care. Um, she's, but she's financially crippled as well as physically disabled the rest of her life. And, you know, this has followed her around now for seven or eight years. Some of that was forgiven by the hospital, but it's just tens and tens of thousands of dollars of, of, of bad credit. Anyway, so. Yeah from a country that is objectively one of the wealthiest countries in the world and the only one of the wealthy countries in the world that does not provide this to their citizens, to me, it's absurd. It's, it's And a failure of a country that still screams and yells about being a Judeo-Christian, you know, we're a, you know, we're a, we're, you know, we're, we're a Christian nation, supposedly, and we care the least about people. Like, that, yeah. that tells me right now, you're not a Christian nation because you don't give, to borrow your term, a fiddler's fart about people's actual lives and God help you if you're, if you're not a citizen, then, then you can just get bent. But. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, they, they do care about the, the pregnant woman. Well, no, they only care about the fetus. Right. No. They, give, they do not give a shit about the woman. Right. And they don't care about the fetus once it's been extricated from the woman. Well, because they care about right. fetuses and not babies. Right. So this is, <laughs> I mean, this, I mean, again, we can go, we can go on and on about how, uh, Specifically in this country, we are, we aren't, we aren't pro-life. We are pro-birth. Because if you're pro-life, you would, you'd be anti-war. You'd be, you'd be anti-death penalty. You'd be all these things, right? But Preach. we're not. We're, right. We're, we, we aren't pro-life. We're pro-birth. But God forbid that woman who has that baby that you made have ask for assistance. Yeah. Because as soon as she asks for assistance, she's a, she's a blight. She's a blight on the country. She's someone we make fun of because for all intents and purposes, we made her have that baby that maybe she, she's like, I don't, I don't want this baby. I'm not prepared for this baby. I don't. And who knows, you know, this again, goes into like, we don't, we're not even talking about the history of how she got pregnant. Right. Which again, on the conservative side, doesn't, they don't give a shit about any of that. It could be, she could be impregnated by her, you know, alcoholic stepfather, who, I mean, all these things, right? But God forbid we don't allow this child to be brought into this world to then be a blight on society and we get to talk shit about for the rest of its life and its mother's life. Well, that's, that whole faux pro-life thing really annoys the fuck right out of me. <laughs> it segues into another essay that's in the book that I entitled Crimes Against Humanity. And that, that was written after the Supreme Court had three different uh, decisions, boom, 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 one of which was overturning Roe v. Wade. And I kind of go through in that essay why that's a crime against humanity. Because aut bodily autonomy is something that I'm pretty sure I want, and I'm pretty sure most dudes want. And if they, you know, if these white Republican you know, politicians really wanted to bring down the abortion rate, they could all go get snipped. 
there wouldn't be a single fucking abortion if if, if all those jerkwads went and got a vasectomy. Amen to that. I mean, that's that's hundred percent preventable. The truth of the matter. Yeah, it's a hundred percent preventable. But the other the other two was uh, was gun rights and uh, a decision that went against the EPA uh, and for the state of West Virginia for fossil fuel extraction and coal extraction and all that kind of thing. And in a time of climate change, Justice John Roberts saying that Congress doesn't have the right to um, regulate these industries. And so, therefore, we're going to rule in favor of the coal company is diabolical. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's It's absolutely diabolical. Just as is, it is to say that uh, any Tom, Dick, or Harry can walk into any store in America and grab a, an AR-15, which when I was in the Marine Corps, we had the M16A2. I last fired an M16A2 in 1996. And about 2010 or 11, a friend of mine had an AR-15. He didn't know how to take it apart. He handed it to me. I field stripped that thing in about a minute. Because it's fucking identical to an M16A2. Yeah, exactly. And he was like, how did you do that? And I said, because I got, I got taught how to do this when I went to boot camp in 1990. And it's so close to being an M16 that even after almost 20 years, I was able to just take it apart and show him what all the pieces were. And I wrote that essay not too long after the Uvalde shooting in which that kid went into whatever store he went into and bought all kinds of ammunition and weapons when the vast majority of the country, whether they have any kind of pro-gun leaning or they're ardently guns should never be manufactured anymore, believe that there should be reasonable restrictions on guns and who can purchase them and how much and all that kind of thing. I remember one time I was talking to a guy in a pub before a Liverpool match, um, big uh, British football fan after having lived in England for a couple of years, a long time ago. And he comes up to me and he's holding his phone and he goes, yeah, I'm having an argument online about gun rights. And I think he thought because I'd been a former Marine that I would just be like, one of the super pro Second Amendment guys. And I just looked at him and said, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, we fired 50 caliber machine guns that could that had armor piercing rounds that could go through half inch of steel. I don't think that I don't think civilians need that. And he just looked at me and goes, Oh yeah, definitely not. <laughs> and I was like, that's a thing. You just advocated for gun control. Yeah. Well that that's the thing that well you know this as well as anybody. Anytime we talk about gun rights, it's always a very binary conversation, right? Yeah. It's like, like, like you just want to take all our guns away. I'm like, no, I don't. But I'm with you. I mean, th- that being said, reasonable limitations on access to, you know, especially sort of military style hardware. Yeah. I hate the term assault weapon because that's, I think it's overused and it's not very descriptive, really. And a lot of what the government has tried to classify as assault weapons are just rifles, but, but, but military style hardware, which, you know, an AR-15 most certainly is, and you, you know, as well as I, is easily modifiable. Um, mm-hmm. I've got friends who are enthused. I was in the Air Force, so my 
my actual my experience, hands-on experience with guns is not much, okay? I spent one day on a range with an M16A2. And, I, and John and I were both raised around guns. But my father had guns that he kept locked in a fucking cabinet. And um, we went out and were taught how to safely use them. And so oh, yeah. my dad would... My dad's staunchly pro, pro Second Amendment now. But, and I, again, I'm, I'm not into curtailing people's rights. But the thing is that, that I have, and I have this conversation with people all the time is, is and we curtail rights all the time. Yeah. I mean, there's, there are very few absolute rights to anything. We all make some trade offs in this thing, right? For the, for the good of our culture and our society. And, you know, the, the, the more vulnerable among us. Um, I live not far from Uvalde. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking around at my friends going, how many of these things need to happen? And how many of these things need to happen in your back fucking yard yeah. before you finally get that what, like, like something has to change. And the sad thing is that within a few days or a week or a month of this happening, it's, 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 it's forgotten because the next one happens or enough time has passed that, you know, we can kind of dismiss it. Well, and the sad part about it is if you really, I mean, if you really look, we all want to talk about polls, right? Because everyone wants to see that Americans are on one side or the other. But most Americans, if you really, if you come down to it, the majority, and I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm being, I don't think I'm exaggerating here. The majority of Americans want there to be some kind of control on who has access to weapons and who doesn't. Yeah, red flag laws would be really great. Yeah, but we have a small we have a small minority that are, are super loud and think and we all think that everyone thinks the way they think. And really what it comes down to it most people are like, "Hey, I yeah, I don't want that guy having a gun either." You know? And th- the whole like waiting period, you know, a, a, a quote-unquote cooling off period for purchasing a weapon. First of all, if someone is is going to want to go out and kill somebody, they're going to find a weapon one way or the other. So we need to stop having giving them access to weapons outside of the norm of the process. That's that's problem number one. But problem number two is most of these shootings that have happened in our country have been legally purchased weapons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what we find out is these people have issues that have been ignored. Right. Like the Uvalde shooting kid. Exactly. And, you know, we, we know about, we know about the connection between mass shootings and psychotropic drugs. That's one, right? Of people who are, who have these connections. So we as a country need to, to realize that the rights, that the safety of many out, outweighs the rights of the few. Absolutely. Easy, and, communist. Careful. <laughs> one of the things that a lot of people don't know and I explicate in that particular essay, Crimes Against Humanity, is that there is a a historical line of thought that says the Second Amendment is rooted in white supremacy, which... Oh, I I definitely would agree with that. There's a legal historian named Carl T. Boggess who kind of formulated this theory, and he basically says that the, the Second Amendment was written the way it was to ensure that there wouldn't be any restrictions on white Southerners having weapons in the event that the enslaved started running away so that they could go catch fugitives, slaves, and in case of a 
slave rebellion, which the Southern slaveocracy was scared witless about for a long time because of what happened in Haiti. And for people who don't know what happened in Haiti, it was exactly. the only place where there was a successful slave uprising and Toussaint Louverture took over and kicked the white French enslavers' asses and set up his own black republic. And now Haiti is one of the most impoverished nations in the world. Hmm. There's no white supremacy there. No, I say sarcastically. No. So there's this idea that the Second Amendment is rooted in white supremacy. And then, as um, Michael Moore pointed out in Bowling for Columbine, there's definitely white supremacy at the roots of the NRA. And what pisses me off to no fucking end is that the NRA membership is less than 1% or 2% of the fucking population of the country, and yet they have so many politicians held in their thrall. And they and then they start making these decisions and and every time there's a mass shooting, these fuckers double down on their rhetoric. And it gets more incendiary and more violent and you're never taking our guns and all of that kind of stuff. And that's why I call it a crime against humanity. Because people shouldn't have to be worried that they go to the grocery store or to the local big box retailer or to a fucking festival or a parade or something and that somebody's going to open fire. That's, I mean, that's absolute madness. And it just happened, it just happened in Philadelphia the other night. There were people playing basketball on a basketball court and five people started opening fire and a number of people got killed. Well, the downside, the downside on top of that is right. It's uh, just knowing that policing is based in white supremacy. Also, oh, absolutely. The yeah. whole idea of the whole idea of the police force. And I'm sorry for anyone who listens who is a police officer, and you want to say, "Well, I'm not. I'm not prejudiced. I'm oh, not don't racist." Think you said all cops are racist. But, but here, I, I'll but I'll say this: policing, policing is built on a racist ideology. Yeah. The idea of how we police is white supremacist at its core. Absolutely. And I, so, and if anyone who wants to like look into the history of how, where policing started is do it. It was, I mean, it was a eye opening moment for me to realize why policing in this country even exists, where it started, why it started. And it was literally to chase down runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, so everything that we think of as, of, as policing has its starting point there. And so, yes, there are, there are cops that are not racist. I'm going to say, I'll say that, but they work within a racist environment. And even if they don't want to be in that environment, they are. Right. And that's what Walter Wink called the interiority of, the, of a domination system. And until you change that interiority, you're not going to get a massive change, and well, that's how that's how you get a George Floyd moment, where right. you have it's like, well, there the, not only not all the cops that were there were even white. I understand that, I get that, but they were <laughs> built up and raised up in a racist environment that told them that to to protect the blue over everything else. 
Yeah, they they have internalized white supremacy. And one of the things that permaculture teaches, and I, Nat mentioned in my in the intro, that I look at the world through a permaculture lens, and that's a system of ecological and social design that's that uses patterns uh, to work with nature rather than against it. And permaculture's systems thinking, right? So if we don't, and systems thinking says that a system will continue to perpetuate itself and just keep on plugging. Think of your refrigerator or freezer as like, as like a system uh, that unless you, you know, cut the cord or puncture the uh, hermetically sealed compressor, it's going to keep doing what it does. So in systems thinking, it takes a shock to the system to change the system. And just having people of color be police is not going to be enough to shock that system of white supremacist policing because it is racist at its core just like uh you know the whole uproar about crt in this country and and people like chris rufo and matt walsh and uh william wolf and all those people they would look at my books and say this is crt or this is woke mind virus nonsense but what Derek bell actually said was Systemic racism is so baked into the system that even if you have a landmark court decision like, say, Brown versus uh, Board of Education, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, et cetera, that, that, change, that seems on the surface to change something, it doesn't really. It reverts back to the, the systemic racist mean, so to speak, and we don't – the progress – seems to be like one step forward, three steps back because, because the system is inherently what it is. And until we change that system and theologically speaking, how do we do that? Well, I think it's by radical love of neighbor and by the golden rule because well, Jesus I mean, put a lot funny? of, a lot of stuff, a lot of importance on that particular rule. Um, he said it's the entire sum of all the law and the prophets. Yeah, but he was woke. I mean, Jesus was a pretty woke. Yeah, yeah. well, Jesus was oh, yeah. woke, yes. But um, I find it really amazing that specifically with the conservative right, uh, Christian nationalists, yeah. that they, the, they flat out ignore the teachings of the person they supposedly follow. Oh, yeah, which absolutely. Is what you're talking about. You know, the Good Samaritan, they would never do that. Right, the golden rule is completely out the window. That doesn't happen. Uh, Trump is a perfect example of the golden rule not happen. Doesn't mean anything, you know. It's more like do unto others before they do unto me. Is the world that he lives in, and most, most of the people on the nationalist side of the conservative movement are that. But how? Where do we even begin? As people are like, okay, so I'm. You know, I don't call myself a Christian. I, I'm not sure where Nat is anymore on that. I think he's he's still on the fence. So I call myself a, a follower of Christ. I, I am a Christ follower. I follow the way. Um, where do we even begin uh, standing up and showing people a better version of what Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad? I mean, you know, we always talk about Jesus as like this, like 
this path, pantheon of like of all the greatness. But I, I think in the Buddhist world, Buddha shows us another way that is is very Jesus centric, really. Um, yeah. How do we how do we even begin to ha- be that voice of change, or can we? It, it's it's super fucking difficult. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's that's why we have all of this kind of chaos now is because we haven't located that as our center of authority. The Christian nationalists are all about power and control. They, like you said, they don't care at all about actually following the one that they say that they follow. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. was so reviled by conservatives because he was saying, look, we got to do our economic system differently. We can't just be throwing coins to beggars. We got to dismantle systems that make beggars possible. Well, capitalism is that system. And if you start talking about dismantling capitalism, well, then people, they get nervous, you know, because uh, wealth hoarding. And and I've, I have for many years said that, that capitalism is literally the love of money. And whoever wrote First Timothy chapter uh, one, chapter six, said that wealth, the temptation to wealth, is is undermined so much, and that the love of money is the root of all evil. Christians should be happy with food and clothing and shelter. How am I supposed to follow in Joel Osteen's footsteps and self actualize my way to wealth? If oh, wait a minute. Almost like those two ideas are diametrically it's opposed. Like, it's almost like it's yeah. Well, it's funny because you know, whenever you talk theology, I mean, it's interesting to me. But um, one of the things I've noticed, and, and I've, I've pointed out a few times, is that people people who are on the other side of this is me. They love to take certain things in the Bible very literally and very flatly, right? Yep. And mm-hmm. then they like to nuance the shit out of the words of Jesus. <laughs> So all yes. that, right. So I, I could say, well, listen. He says uh, right here uh, to the rich young ruler that he should go and sell all he has and give it to the poor, and then he could come and follow him. And and there's our example for how to. Oh well, you understand that Jesus was uh, was speaking to him about his particular issue with wealth. He wasn't saying that everyone has that problem. However, women should be silent in the church because Paul said so. Um, well, maybe. Diddy, diddy, you know what I'm saying? But there's, there's this very elementary reading of Paul yeah. because it's it's a narrative. And then they want to find nuance and context when yeah. it comes to the things that would challenge them deeply. Um, God help you if you ever want to talk to him about how we should be treating our LGBTQ friends and siblings. And you, you said, you know, you, you brought up Matt Walsh, so I'll blame you for this. Um, that guy, <laughs> I, he's a repugnant human being. He oh is, yeah. Uh, he openly called for the execution, not by him because he's a good Christian, but by the government. Says the government should put uh, gay people to death. Yeah. Um, yeah. Humanely, though, he says he did. He did. Um, he, he did clarify that he meant that they should be humanely put to death. Oh well, that's nice of him. I, I, I thought that was. I thought that was very nice of him. But um, I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier, real quick, just before I forget. But the 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 root of white supremacy, uh, those kinds of things are not just in our national discourse, but they're deeply embedded in our religious discourse. Oh, well, well 100%. And, I, you know, I, I think we know this, but I was watching a... Uh, 
I, I don't know if you do this. Maybe I'm the only one. I go on these, like these YouTube rabbit holes, right? So I'm down the YouTube rabbit hole with some, with a, with a guy who's a brilliant atheist, um, evolutionary biologist, but he does really amazing educational videos and, and debunking stuff. And he's just fun, you know. Uh, his name is, um, I want to give him a shout out just in case anyone's listening. His name is Forrest Falkai. Super, super young, super smart guy, but he's been playing these videos that are put out by, I want to say Answers of Genesis or Kenham, one of these guys, you know, one of these right wing think tank, whatever guys. And in this, it's literally a, 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 he's, he's reacting to a video that's put out for children that's trying to give the right, um, the right version of history. Oh, Dennis Prager. Oh, you're right. You're right. It was, it was, yeah, it's it's the Prager stuff. Yeah. Like a little animated story, and they were like, they don't want, to, they don't want to teach us about Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was a great man, and one of the things that Robert E. Lee is, Robert e. Lee is credited for in this video is putting down a slave rebellion. Jesus, yeah, um, <laughs> Robert E. Lee was not a good person. <laughs> no, I mean, but they don't even try to nuance it and say, well, you know, no, 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 people, he did this, that was good, he did this, the things he's citing that they're citing that he did that was good was fight for the rights for people to own human beings and and to actually help put down a slave rebellion. And to, it's like, oh my God. It's like, you don't even hear yourselves. You know, it's like, but, but, but that, that level of, that, that level of self-delusion is what we're dealing with. So when we talk about how, how do we get to a place where we can combat this, man, got your work cut out for you because some of these people are, are, they're deep up their own asses with this stuff. They don't even know, they can't see out. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I see historical education is so important. And, and that's, that's where my undergrad uh, training was. And I also had some uh, grad level history classes in seminary. And Dennis Prager is a white supremacist. Uh, it, oh, yeah. It's very, very clear that that's his whole shtick. The funny thing about Dennis Prager is he actually hired a historian named Ty. Oh, I'm probably going to get his name wrong. Side, side, Seidel or some Seidel. Anyway, guy from West Point, uh, who taught history at West Point. And, and he did a video about the causes of the Civil War. And he said slavery. It was caused by slavery. And I think that that people at PragerU were like, this is not what we signed up for, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> oh. because he, I mean, he was very, he's like, look, people don't want to hear that you went to war about enslaving people. And my, my work, all of it, the first book, Go Golden, both volumes of Theological Musings, have historical elements to them and people that have never taken a history class in college or who didn't get a history degree don't understand the kinds of work and critical thinking that goes into the work of of crafting history right so when you have somebody like ron desantis or the Prager, uh, I think it's Oklahoma that has now decided that they're going to jump on the Prager U bandwagon, and that's what they're going to use as their anti-woke stuff. That, well, this is what you end up with in schools. This perpetuates 
the white supremacy. So I've been seeing it a bunch lately. Those who don't want to tell the truth about history want to repeat it. And it does seem to me, and I'm not an educational expert, uh, but it does seem to me that there's this very intentional, perfidious way of, of undermining education coming from the right. A lot of high school history textbooks are made in Texas, and a lot of them have a bunch of whitewashed history in them that then gets disseminated to high schools and, you know, junior highs and shit all over the country and whatnot. Then you have people like Betsy DeVos and all these, you know, voucher people who, who want to create private schools that get public school funding so that only rich kids get a decent education. It seems an awful lot like they're trying to create recreate feudalism where there's this perpetual underclass of uneducated people who are going to do all of this quote-unquote menial work while to prop up the wealthy and at minimum they're they're reintroducing segregation oh sure yeah absolutely with within their worldview their children can only get a proper education if they're only around people that look like them yeah right. act like them but- well, and then, you know, in, in Tennessee and other places, um, they're ripping out sections of their textbooks that deal with evolution in science class or, or, oh, or, or, insisting, or insisting that creation or intelligent design get equal footing. Um, so well, I thought in, charter is, school, uh, in Texas and in charter schools, you can teach whatever the fuck you want. Um, right. I don't think science teachers taught evolution, um, at least, except to say, it's just a theory. Charles Darwin was a crackpot. Okay, here's how God did it in six days. Let's take a tour of the Ark Museum. <laughs> <laughs> That's in volume two. <laughs> it, it needs to be because here's 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 what really kills me about the Ark. Now I'll, I'll um, is that Ken Ham? Is that his yeah, deal? Yeah. Yeah. So that sob gets to build this massive theme park, fill it full of the junkiest of junk science. I mean, it is absolutely terrifying what's in there. And he gets to do it all under the auspices of a 501c3 charitable organization because he's a church. And right. he don't pay tax on that shit. And he yeah. charges people upwards of $100 to go through it. So he's making boatloads of money. Hey, I made a pun about Noah. Um, <laughs> no he's making boatloads of money. It's all tax-free. And the added benefit of, oh, by the way, here's a bunch of really bad misinformation um, about, how, how about how baby dinosaurs were in the ark because they live contemporaneous with human beings. Yeah, because the geological record has been faked. And like all, it's all this really deep state conspiracy theory stuff because, yeah, uh, that's, that's for real. I, I, watched the, I watched another YouTube video where this, this other amazing, brilliant evolutionary biologist, she, she took a, a tour of the ARC encounter with her video oh, camera and, was like, and showed like, oh my God, this is, well, this is all wrong. This is bad. <laughs> Um, <laughs> did she go to the like, Creation Museum too? Because that one she did. Yeah she, yeah, she started at the Creation Museum. Her name is Erica. We're actually trying to. She's agreed to come on the podcast. Uh, haven't nailed that a date, but her name, her YouTube channel is called the Gut Sick Gibbon. Um, and she's young. She looks like she's about seventeen. She's probably closer to like like mid to late twenties, but just young looking, but very smart. And her area of expertise is in evolutionary biology. So she's she's got the chops to explain why this is all bad. But yeah, she went to the Creative Museum first and then tripped on down to the Ark Encounter. 
but again, I, I don't think I would care too much about it, but the, the, the tax exempt status stuff gets me. Oh, uh, absolutely. The fact, the fact that they get to do this basically on the public dime, it's, it's, it's crazy. But, and it's um, 2023. Yeah. And we're still trying to wrap our heads around, or still trying to prove. Here's the thing that gets me. If you want to, as a, as a, as a, you know, as a human person with autonomy and whatever, and you can believe in whatever fanciful shit you want to believe. That's fine. But there, there has to be a place where you say, I don't, none of this makes sense, but I take it on faith that God did it rather than try to always figure out a way to make it make sense. Like there's nothing about Noah's Ark that makes sense. Not a thing. I mean, not even, not even one of those groups of animals could have survived. What the hell did the meat eaters eat for 40 days? Come on, man. Well, from um, an ecology <laughs> standpoint, that whole thing is, is, is wackadoodle. I mean, it's, it's, it, it falls apart on, on, on its very first, like, probe, right? You go, yeah. okay, let's get past this part of it. it. The rest of it still doesn't work. But then for it to be taught in, in public schools and have it give, have it be given equal billing, basically, with other more established sciences, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 it drives me crazy. I was in high school in the 80s. Um, I'm older than I look. And we did the play Inherit the Wind my sophomore year. The, the play Inherit the Wind is about the Scopes Monkey Trial. Oh, okay. With yeah. um, William, Jenning, William Jennings Bryan and Clarence Darrow. Right, right. And this was the 80s in Blue Ridge, Texas. So to do this play in a town like Blue Ridge was pretty progressive at the time. That was 30-something years ago. And that was a play about something that had happened in the 1920s. So it's absolutely astounding to me that 100 years, roughly, after the Scopes Monkey Trial, we're still dealing with this shit. Yeah. In Tennessee, apparently. Yeah. And Texas. Yeah, in Texas and and, and Kentucky, where that stupid arc is. I mean, and if you go to his website and I and and. You know, I've done it so other people don't have to because you might want to pour <laughs> acid on your eyeballs. <laughs> he he actually says, look, none of this works if you add, like, time to the equation. Right, right. Well, I got news, mate. There were people in Australia 40,000 years ago. No, no, sir. No. That's <laughs> longer than your timeline, right? Sorry, you're... Okay. you're, you're Mistaken about that. Earth is yeah. six thousand years old. What are you? What are you talking about? Right. Forty. I can. I can years. walk out into my freaking yard probably and find a rock that's millions probably of years old. Million years old. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So uh, if you be- if you believe all that radiocarbon dating malarkey from the so-called scientists, you understand that that's all a lie, right? Yeah. Oh, that, that, well, <laughs> well I, one time in the late nineties. I had a pastor's wife. That's when I, I had been out of the Marine Corps a couple of years and my then wife had become a chaplain in the army. And so me and this other chaplain's spouse were, were on our way into Mexico to go do a, a service project with Casas Per Cristo to, to build a very small house for a poor family in, in Juarez. And she looks at me with all seriousness and says, all the dinosaurs had to be vegetarians because the Bible says that everybody was a vegetarian in Genesis. <laughs> and I was a fundamentalist at the time. 
I was even you I were like, Southern Baptist. And I just looked at her like she was from fucking outer space. And I was like, so <laughs> what about the T-Rex? And she goes, that's Satan. <laughs> Satan <laughs> created <laughs> fake fossils. <laughs> now, first of all, well done, Satan. I mean, yeah, 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 really. If God is going to allow that kind of perfidious malfeasance and then <laughs> is Calvinistic on top of it, then fuck you, God. Like, <laughs> seriously. Because, that, I, but that just, that level of illogic. Well, yeah. I mean, just, it's, it does, it just is mind blowing. And this was well, a seemingly a- intelligent person. Right. And that's the kicker, right? It's like, I'm half the time I talk to people, I'm, I'm half, more than half the time, I'm dealing with intelligent people. I, I, you know, I mean, they're, they're not drooling or, you know, walking outside, you know, in, in, in a safety harness or a helmet. I mean, they're, and these are people who, who are, are ordinarily reasonable people. And yet they check all that reason at the door and then say stuff like, well, up until the no, and up until Noah's flood, it didn't rain. It had never rained before. That's that's in the Bible, by the way. I'm like, oh, of course, there were also giants and the angels had sex with humans and and you know created a whole race of people. That's uh, that's all in the Noah movie, by the way. If you want to check that out, Russell Crowe. <laughs> but I've literally, you know, I've heard people on YouTube. <laughs> this is this is what I do now, John. You should know this, but who are who are <laughs> who literally believe. That in fact, this guy said it on a on a oh, he's a flat earther too. God, God help him. But on a, one of these shows I was watching, and he's he claims that there's a, the reason that in 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 these places in the world where there's like big huge churches, you know, with the big huge doors. Why do you think the doors were so big? Because the people were giant. Oh dear God in heaven! And he's serious. Well, so <laughs> at that point, I don't know. Wash your hands of the whole thing. We're like, I. We actually had the lady on um, how long? Not long, not long ago, John. Right? Um, her name is uh, I looked her up. Uh, Janet Kellogg Ray, and she wrote a book called "The God of Monkey Science," and it's awesome. Yeah, John's got it. It's, it's great, but it really it deals with this whole this whole thing to at least like it, it, it talks about the scope trial, the, the yeah, scope trial, trial and, oh, okay. Yeah. And that was a pejorative that someone had leveled at her every time she would try to teach science inside of a church environment. They would go, "Oh, there goes Jan with her." With her monkey science again, or her oh monkey god. god, she and she'd be like, "Well, you know, that's uh, so." She wrote a book called "The God of Monkey Science," and it's pretty incredible. But I wish I could write a book called "Stupid Shit I Heard in Church," but I found out that Chris Katzer already, already say, wrote Chris that. Already, Chris already wrote it. <laughs> One of the dumber things I ever heard was my ex-wife, uh, who was educated at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth and Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And um, we did uh, at the church that I was, that she was on staff at and that I was, you know, we were members of when I was in the Marine Corps was New Wanted Baptist Church. And we had a whole series on the gay agenda in the early 90s. And I bought it hook, line and sinker because, you know, I was a Southern Baptist and that's what you do. And she told me one time that the Roman Empire collapsed because there was rampant homosexuality. And she believed this. That, but that's what I was taught. And <laughs> I, no, all kidding aside, that's what we were taught. Yeah, right. It's astonishing, though, to say that an entire empire happened 
to fall not because they overextended, not because they spent too much on the military, not because they ran out of grain, not because the Gauls and the Germanic tribes went absolutely fucking berserk. No, it was because there were some people in Rome that liked to have gay sex. That seems, I mean, that, I mean don't get me wrong, it seems reasonable. <laughs> but that's, so it, it wasn't so pointed in in the way it was taught to me it was it was the dec- it was but it was it was the decline in morals like like the, like so the whole roman empire was just debaucherous and immoral and uh funny thing was they uh you know when when little christ followers came around what was the what was the thing they accused christians of being the romans accused them of being atheists or of, or of being and they were like you little bastards with your fake God. I mean, it's, it's not like they didn't have their own religious structures and systems. I mean, we, <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm with you though. I mean, I mean, I, I, I do think that that was probably uh, not the cause. I don't, I, I think historically speaking, there are other things that historians can point yeah. to that, um, that led to the, whatever you want to yeah. call as, as, a, as a descendant of those particular Germanic and Celtic, you know, the Gauls, and the, I would like to say that, yeah, we did that. We were like, <laughs> you know, you're like, hey, Caesar, go ahead, bring your shit over here, see how, see how it works, because uh, you ain't actually, you haven't actually had warfare yet until the, the <laughs> barbarian hordes come at you. But yeah. I don't recall any of the barbarians knocking at the gates of Rome and going, I saw somebody sucking a penis over there. You're dead. <laughs> we were fine until we saw those two dudes kissing, and then yeah, we were like, and then it was like, unleash this. hell. Yeah. We're like, we're taking it all back. <laughs> Couldn't have been that because they were off probably doing the same thing. Um, it's 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 absolutely crazy though. So, but that's so get get back to that whole thing of like Christian nationalism, right? It seems to be sort of the, the the narrative from start to finish is, you know, you you start with sort of white supremacy, which which feeds into this whole notion of of um of American exceptionalism, right? Which has its roots in white supremacy, uh, which then gets pushed on to uh, anytime you start talking about the gay agenda, I already know you're full of shit. Um because every gay person I know, their agenda is to uh, you know, work, make some money. Live their live. fucking lives live their fucking lives, maybe watch some Netflix, all right? Yeah. Um, maybe old. not be persecuted by their own government um, simply for living. That'd be probably top of their list. Um, but it all seems to go hand in hand and hand in hand. But at the root of all of it, at the foundation of all of it, is this very, very, again, elementary, fundamentalist understanding of, of, of a twisted version of Christianity. And I, don't oh, even, I won't even say Christianity. It, it, it's, it's their warped version of that, right? Yeah, and I have I have yet to see an American Christian nationalist that didn't look like me and you. Yeah. They're all white. Yeah. And a lot of them yeah. are Baptist. And a lot of people didn't know don't know this, but the Southern Baptist Convention is the I was or probably still is the largest denomination in the United States. Yeah, I believe it is. And it was founded because of a split with the Northern Baptist over abolition of slavery. And Richard Furman, who uh, founded, I guess, Furman College or Furman University, uh, said that the, that the Christian golden rule was not a moral injunction against enslaving black people. Oh, 
well, that settles it. Yeah, that settles it. Um, and, and he was one of the early proponents of what became the Southern Baptist Convention. So you have this ama- massively large denomination whose roots are, again, in not only white supremacy, but in the enslavement of people from Africa and their descendants. Yeah, and on the profiting off of their forced manual labor and all of that that goes with it. You know, and and all of that would be one thing if ever in their history they would own that and then repudiate it. They they very seldom do. And I mean, there are a handful of people, but they are the minority. You know, they are are the exception, not the rule. Um, That denomination, I don't have any respect for... um, for the, I, it just they still they still double and triple down on it, you know, and they still you know they still operate in this way. Um, they just have found cleverer ways to to do it. But um, oh, they're yeah, so absolutely- they're so disingenuous. There's a there's a guy named William Wolf who was in the Trump administration as some undersecretary or something in the Trump administration, and he is what he terms himself a based Baptist. And he tries to say that there's nothing wrong with Christian nationalism and that there's nothing racist about it. And then he says a racist thing or (laughs) or he'll say, we're not looking to enforce religion, but we do want to make sure that everybody has to live under the rules that we would make. So if you have the roots of an organization being that you believe that white people are superior and therefore are entitled to enslave and control every move that a black person makes, well, that's a pretty bad seed that's probably going to manifest at some point into this hyper-controlling authoritarian version of churchianity that doesn't look anything like Jesus. Well, they'd be the first ones to say that prayer in school is mandatory until you said, okay, well, what about my Muslim friend? What about yeah. my Muslim friend over there? Well, oh, no, 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 no. Right, well, yeah. We don't, we, don't, we don't want that in our schools. I taught high school in Texas, right? Oh, God help For you. a year. I did. And <laughs> I taught high school in a charter school in Texas. I actually started teaching in high school in a private Christian school that then became a charter school. There was a big, huge deal about, you know, one of our coaches leading a team in prayer on on the field. And I remember being one of the very few who were like, okay, how about this? Imagine that coach is now named Muhammad. Uh And he wants to lead the school in a prayer to Allah. You would lose your ever-loving minds and scream separation of church and state. Um, So let's at least be honest. What what, What you want is prayer in school. That is your particular version of prayer. So now we'll say this: so when we became a charter school, uh, we got a little bit more strict about that kind of stuff, and we we allowed students a moment of silence in the morning. Um, we didn't leave anybody. And I, and I was that guy going, "Listen, no one's ever banned school and prayer in school. It's never happened. There's not one single law on the books that says you can't thou shalt not pray in school. What you can't do is have teacher led prayer in school. You can't that's mandate me. prayer. You can't, and I can't make anyone pray. But I could leave some. We could carve out." 30 minutes, 30 seconds before class starts, if you want to take a moment. Or hell, I don't care if you pray all day long. The, the way that you and I understand prayer, prayer without ceasing means you're sort of in this constant conversation. And, you know, I, I saw every kid pray right before a test. I mean, come on, man. 
but this idea that somehow that you know we kicked God out of school is it's it always it always tracked me up. It's I, I tell people a lot of times it's a good thing I quit teaching when I did because I quit teaching sort of pre starting to dis, you know de- deconstruct and do all this stuff, and now I. I would have had to stand there and do things that I could not do now, which like lead the lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Which yeah. now I'm just like I couldn't, do, I could not in good conscience. I won't do it. I won't say it myself, and I would not have led students in it just because I, I to me, I don't, I don't understand it. <laughs> it seems uh, very, very anti-Christ to say I'm going to pledge allegiance to this flag, and but that would have gotten me in a lot of trouble. Thankfully, I got I I quit before then. But well, the the Christian nationalist. They, they have a misguided apprehension that their Christianity is the only Christianity. I was educated in a United Church of Christ seminary. Our dean was gay. The very best preacher I have ever heard in my life, flamboyantly gay. Christian people are gay sometimes. But Matt Walsh, William Wolf, Chris Rufo, uh, that lib, uh, Chaya Reichick or whatever her fucking name is with the libs of yeah. TikTok and all, all her yeah. transphobic nonsense. Alyssa Childers and they don't, the list. they don't understand that there are many different ways to be Christian. There are hundreds of denominations in the United States alone and 40 to 45,000 globally. And when they say they want a Christian nation, we know exactly what they mean. They do not mean that they want Dylan Neighbor Cruz, United Church of Christ educated theologian to be in charge of things. Because no, that would no. look a lot like the golden rule. <laughs> so we wouldn't have a military. Capitalism would be radically different. But that's not what they want. They want the white supremacist, slaveholder religion, authoritarianism. Lancaster County is a really interesting place because we have the historic peace churches here. Amish, Mennonites, and Brethren, Quakers, right? yeah. and, and Quakers. And then we also have these radical Christian nationalists who uh, were just featured in Rolling Stone not too long ago because this guy named Chris Hume, uh, who runs the Patriot News out of Lancaster, called for the public stoning of people and, 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 and tried to make this case that this was a good thing uh, and he used the um, illustration of adultery as one of the reasons why people should be publicly stoned. I don't, I don't know that he mentioned Trump uh, as as maybe one of the people that he would stone, but it just it boggles my mind that that's the kind of discourse that we're having in 2023. And one of the really terrifying things is that one of our county commissioners retweeted something from that particular paper on Twitter before it became X, like a number of months ago. So I know that at least one of our county commissioners is a super conservative Christian, and his wife is a hearing officer in the county court system. And and she hears cases with kids who are LGBTQ sometimes, because I was in courtrooms with them when I was uh, working for an organization called CASA. And we have another judge that I don't know if he still is, but at one time he was a member of that legal organization of fundamentalist Christians who try to go get uh, Christian bigotry codified into law. 
So they were they were the organization that was behind uh, suing the the bakery or defending the baker who didn't want to bake the cake for the gay couple. So we've got that judge sitting on cases with uh, LGBTQ kids in this county with this full of Anabaptists who historically didn't get involved in government. Now, Mennonites do. A lot of Mennonites vote, but uh, Amish people don't. But now we have Amish people going down the road with flags and I've seen Amish buggies with Trump stickers on them. Oh, God help us all. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a crazy time to be in, in America and, and in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania right now. And, and it has to, a lot to do with what you were talking about, the, this white supremacist roots of Christian nationalism. And I've watched some video, I watched a short snippet of a county commissioner's meeting and watched this pastor get up and start lecturing the county commissioners, one of whom is a very conservative Christian who may be a full on Christian nationalist, as far as I know, and telling them that they were doing it wrong because they weren't governing by the Bible. And I'm sitting there screaming at my computer screen going, what about the fucking First Amendment? (laughs) <laughs> which protects us from people like you. And it literally says you can't even privilege enough one religion over another. And yet we still have Christmas and Easter as our national religious holidays. But, but you see what you've done here, right? What you've done is you've interjected reason and logic into the conversation. Yeah, that, yeah so I'm, I, I'm terrible about that. I mean, <laughs> I mean I, I, I'm learning um, that when it comes to certain people that the, that, that, that doesn't work. You get to a place where you want to say we can reasonably disagree. Reasonable people can reasonably disagree. But oftentimes you're going up against people who are, I know I sounded flippant when I said that, but I mean that seriously, that they're, they're, they've just checked reason at the door. And now it's all, because, it, and, I, and I don't know if it's just because they're so, they've so bought into the lie that everyone's out to get them. So they have to then, you know, hunker down and preserve everything they possibly can because it's all getting taken away. And I, I, I know lots of people who are genuinely afraid that at some point, you know, the government's going to come along and, you know, make Christianity illegal, haul them off the concentration camps. And I'm like, dude, you are divorced from reality. I mean, this is a, it's what you, what you're, what you're bitching about most of the time is not having your particular religious sensitivities catered to. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You're being yeah. asked to be sensitive to somebody else who might not share those beliefs and not try to force them into your worldview. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to me. But what do I know, John? What do I know? I don't know. What do you know? John doesn't know. I don't know. I do know that <laughs> if you have made it this far through our discussion and we haven't um, run you off or offended you, good on you. I'm impressed. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and if you haven't already, I'm, I'm hoping that at some point you stopped, maybe paused and ran to Amazon or, or some other place and, and bought, uh, bought Dylan's book. Because that's, uh, that's what you should do. This is a... This is a this is something well worth your time. It's well worth reading. Um, the material inside of it is is top notch. Um, I, I just I can't recommend it enough. So thank you. I, I appreciate you taking the time to come on, man. It's good to uh, finally see you face to face after sort of kind of knowing each other online for a couple of years. So it's cool to to connect with you a little bit. Yeah, I appreciate appreciate y'all having me. And and for any people that wanted to run away screaming, <laughs> you know, I grew up. In a racist context, 
I got a picture of me as a four-year-old with my mom uh, sitting at the kitchen table, and there's a giant Confederate flag on the wall behind us. And I was born in Kansas City, Missouri, so you know, couldn't say that it was heritage, not hate, in Kansas City, Missouri. And I was I was indoctrinated to to hate gay people, and by grace and intellect, I was able to extricate myself from the burden of that bigotry. So other people can too. Absolutely, yeah. That's the that's the that's the trick is you know at some point because you know I, I don't know that we were you know. I was going to say, I don't know that we were indoctrinated to hate, but I think we were. I mean, we were certainly, indo- we were certainly taught to judge harshly gay people. I mean, mm-hmm. that was like that. W- and, and I was in my thirties before it ever occurred to me that the word gay and Christian could go together and not be, you know, the, the beginning part of the joke. <laughs> so I was late in coming to this just because that was the culture in which I was raised. It was the ministry path I took. Mm-hmm. But I will say this, and I've said it before, and it's a good place to close. Bigotry does not survive relationships. It rarely survives relationships. Amen. Getting out and, and actually taking the time to get to know people and hear their stories will go a long way towards, towards rounding off those edges. You know what I mean, it's like it's hard, to, it's hard to stay that way when there's actual human beings that you know. So that's, that's my advice to everybody all the time. It's like, man, get out of your circle, get out of your bubble. Um, yeah. Make it a point to get to know somebody and see how long you can stay a bigot. I don't think it lasts very long. As Bell Hook what said, <laughs> practice intentional diversity. Exactly. Perfect. That is a good place to, to end. I, I, I enjoyed talking to you, man. Thank you so much. Appreciate yeah, thanks it. for having John, me. John, you got any parting shots, John? No, I have, I have nothing to add except, again, thank you for coming on. This has been an amazing conversation. I can't yeah. wait for people to hear it. It's going to be, it's, it's really good. Most excellent. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.